0: to the Eric Erickson Show podcast. Hour 3. Greetings, conversationalists. It's Eric Erickson here, coming to you from beautiful Washington, D.C. It's been kind of chilly here. It rained last night when I got in. uh, Beautiful view of the Capitol from where I am broadcasting from, way off in the distance. I have to confess something to you right now. Um, You know, when I take the road trips, that's where I wear out and I give you the the good confessions. So, (laughs) So my confession is I'm a little, I, I, I won't say I'm punch drunk per se, but I am, I'm hitting the wall. Uh, I, this is starting to be my regret that the, the phone system, I, I can't get it to work off my iPad to be able to to take your phone calls. Cause I could use the phone calls. Um, I, I had like maybe five hours of sleep, I've been in meetings nonstop today. Uh, and the moment I am out of here, I'm, I'm back into meetings, but I'm, I'm glad to really to take this break. Cause I. Okay, the real confession comes out. Uh, so I'm in meetings with wonderful people who I know, who I like, who are friends. And I just don't like to be in these sorts of meetings. Um, I, I, I don't know. It's very weird. Uh, I, I I realize I, I'm more than in my mind I am. But I sit in these meetings with people who who they're well-known people. Uh, Some members of the media, elected officials and others. I'm like, why am I here? I kind of feel like I'm a fraud or something. It's uncomfortable. Um, And and I don't like the small talk of it. And it's all good stuff. It's been very informative. I can't really tell you what it's about. It's super secret media, the vast right-wing conspiracy, um, reviewing different things. Debt limit is something we did talk about. But I I don't know. I just, I'm always uncomfortable. And I know I'm surrounded with people who like me. I'm always convinced everybody hates me when I go to these things and I just, I, I don't, I don't like them. And, but uh, a buddy of mine who is a dear friend asked me, please come to this thing. Everybody wants you there. So I'm here. Um, but I'm kind of glad to have this break to be with you guys, but I'm, I can start, I'm feeling myself wearing out a little bit. Um, we got, we, we got less than an hour. I'm, I can't make it an open container Friday cause I would fall asleep, but there's a story in the Washington post from hit the wires Uh, yesterday afternoon, and I missed it. The headline is, How the Washington Establishment is Confounding Biden's Debt ceiling Plan. From Jeff Stein, the subtitle, The White House Wanted Powerful Business Groups and Nonpartisan Organizations to Side With It Against House Republicans, But They Have Not. As President Biden worked last year to secure passage of his economic proposals, his aides pointed to analyses by the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, a nonpartisan group routinely cited by lawmakers of both parties on fiscal matters. But this year... When the White House and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy dug in for a protracted stalemate over the U.S. debt limit, the nonpartisan committee released a statement in April praising House Republicans' bill on the issue as a realistic and extremely welcome first step in talks. Administration officials were stunned by the announcement, which they thought encouraged what they consider McCarthy's reckless brinksmanship over the nation's credit, according to three people who spoke on the condition of anonymity to describe the private reaction inside the White House. We were livid, one of the people said, and let's be honest, that nonpartisan think tank tends to lean left anyway, regardless of how they say nonpartisan, so they were really surprised by it. The frustration among Biden's aides reflects a pivotal dynamic in the debt-limit fight that could prove crucial to whether the United States avoids a catastrophic default. The Republicans who control the House are demanding billions of dollars in spending cuts from next year's budget in exchange for raising the debt ceiling, the legal cap on how much the government can borrow to pay its existing bills. Biden has refused on principle, arguing the debt limit must be raised no matter what, while saying he's open to a separate discussion on the budget and spending. On Thursday, the Treasury Department reported that one-month government bonds had sold at their highest yields ever, reflecting investor demanding a bigger premium for buying debt with increasing uncertainty as to whether or not it will be repaid. The due date for those bonds falls the first week of June when the government says it may no longer be able to keep up its financial maneuvers to allow more borrowing without a debt ceiling increase. Now, one last paragraph here. Biden officials had hoped they could win in part with the backing of powerful Washington allies outside the government, including establishment Republicans, the business lobby, and nonpartisan budget hawks that have traditionally warned against default. Y'all, these guys have completely screwed this up. I'm, I, so I, I'm kind of stunned by how badly the Biden administration has bungled the debt ceiling fight just follow along with me here they 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 were convinced that the Republicans could never agree to anything they they saw the fight for Kevin McCarthy to become the speaker and they concluded that that fight meant the Republicans would never be able to get anything done and instead the Republicans have gotten a lot done and the Republicans have in fact Uh, raise the debt limit. The Democrats were counting on the fact that there was so much discord within the Republican Party, they would not be able to come to terms internally on some way to raise the debt ceiling. So I've mentioned this before. Let me explain it again one time to you. We've we've got a lot of new listeners out there. The Republicans have about five factions. You've got the, the committee leadership. Those are really the establishment. You've got the Problem Solvers, part of a bipartisan caucus of moderate Republicans. You've got the Main Street Republicans. Those are the progressive, moderate Republicans. You've got the Republican Study Committee. Those are the conservative Republicans. You've got the House Freedom Caucus. Those are the most conservative members. And what McCarthy has done is he gets buy-in from all five groups on the parameters of the legislation. And if he gets buy-in from the parameters, he knows he's going to get the votes of the groups, by and large, with a few exceptions. And everyone is bought in on the idea that there must be cuts. And if you've listened to the moderate and even the, the liberal Republicans, they've all said there must be cuts. If you listen to the nonpartisan budget hawks outside of Congress, they've all said, we are spending too much. There's got to be some cuts. The Biden administration has ignored that. They've ignored the tea leaves. They've ignored the whispers. They've ignored the red flags. They've ignored the warning bells. They've ignored everything. They've been convinced that because everybody hates the Republicans that everyone would side with Biden. And the fact is not everyone really hates the Republicans as much as Joe Biden does. And so Biden put together an entire strategy for raising the debt limit putting the Republicans on defense and hasn't been able to get buy-in from the Fortune 500, from Wall Street, from corporate America, from the investor set, from the banker class, from the nonpartisan think tanks, from the nonpartisan budget hawks, from the establishment Republicans no longer in Congress. You don't get John Boehner out there bashing Kevin McCarthy on this. You haven't heard Paul Ryan say they must do something. You haven't heard any of the former Republicans in Congress, Trent Lotz and Bill Frist of the world anyway. You haven't heard them speak on the issue to the Republicans, telling the Republicans to do something. Because everyone understands that at $31 trillion in national debt, we can't keep charging to the credit card without paying off some bills. And that's the fundamental problem for the Biden administration. They assumed everybody would go along with them. They assumed everyone would have their back. They assumed everyone hated Kevin McCarthy. They assumed everybody hated the Republicans. They assumed the Republicans couldn't get anything done. They assumed the Senate Republicans wouldn't have the back of the House Republicans. Every single calculation they have made has been wrong. And when you start looking at the Biden administration and the decisions of the Biden administration, it goes beyond that. Remember the crime bill in D.C.? They alienated House Democrats from them on that. Uh, There was another one they alienated house democrats on oh it was a regulatory repeal where house democrats had the president's back and then the president said okay i'm going to go along and and, and sign it uh the, the covid that's what it was covid emergency order expiring when nancy pelosi was in charge of the house and chuck schumer was in charge of the senate the biden administration could let nancy pelosi for all of her faults a competent house speaker You and I may not like her politics. We may not care for her personally, but she got stuff done. She knew how to put people in a room and get legislation drafted. Joe Biden has not had to do that. And Joe Biden's team has not had to do that. And Joe Biden's strategy has consistently in the past alienated the House Democrats. And now suddenly you got the Republicans in there, and they were just convinced the Republicans would be too inept and too divided to get anything done. They badly miscalculated. They badly overshot on on their strategy. And now you've got Joe Biden. Democrats are beginning to grumble he's going to sell out, that Joe Biden's the one who's going to cave, that Joe Biden is going to compromise. And they do not want Joe Biden to compromise. And there's a problem. Joe Biden was in Washington for 50 years before now. Most of that time, Joe Biden was in the United States Senate. And Joe Biden has been caught on video multiple times with debt ceiling fights, demanding cuts, demanding other issues be addressed, not just a clean debt ceiling. So Joe Biden cannot demand a clean debt ceiling increase when Joe Biden, the senator, never wanted a clean debt ceiling increase. He always wanted to tie it to something. Why is this Joe Biden different from that Joe Biden? The White House doesn't have an answer for it. This White House has screwed up. And that leads me to believe that there's never been strategic genius at the White House. I mean, I didn't think Ron Klain, when he was there, was very smart. It was always in my mind that they were allowing Nancy Pelosi to to run the shop because Nancy Pelosi had to get stuff through the House, and she had a very small majority herself. And so the result is that Joe Biden is being exposed and his team is being exposed for not being very good managers of the, the legislation in Washington, not being very good managers of the partisan policy flow in Washington. They underestimated the Republicans so badly. And I think a lot of people overestimated the Biden team. And it turns out that the Biden team looked competent when Nancy Pelosi was in charge of the House and guiding their legislation through the House of Representatives. But Joe Biden, left to his own devices, screws up time and time again. Joe Biden and his new chief of staff, I can't even remember the guy's name. They're they're underwhelming. And the last chief of staff got us to record high inflation and wrecked the economy. And that suggests to me that if the Republicans are smart with their play in 2024, the Republicans can run circles around the Democrats. Because the Democrats have gotten high on their own supply. They're convinced they're better than they are, more competent than they are, and that their opponents are far less competent than their opponents actually are. That recipe for, of hubris and arrogance will be their undoing. Howdy, welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here nationwide. I, now, this is sensitive for some of you. Uh, first, I should say this hour is brought to you by First Liberty Building and Loan, wherever you are in the nation. If you're in charge of the finances of a business and you need that business to grow and you need $750,000 or more, reach out to First Liberty Building and Loan. FirstLibertyGA.com is the website. Tell them I sent you FirstLibertyGA.com. This is for businesses, not individuals. If you're buying a building, building a building, growing a franchise, reach out. FirstLibertyGA.com. Now, this is sensitive for like five of you. Because you five send me the angriest, nastiest hate mail when I bring this up. But we need to talk about Carrie Lake. Carrie Lake is the news anchor from Arizona who ran for governor, having never held elected office in her life, and she still does not. And she's been speaking uh, in Hungary, CPAC Hungary, Um Not sure what the situation is on young men in Hungary. (laughs) Did I just say that? Um, Carrie Lake is a culture warrior in Hungary. Meanwhile, Carrie Lake's campaign Twitter account is suggesting we need to stop talking about Bud Light and the trans issues. That there are other issues. It's weird to watch her pivot. She's such a fraud. uh, She can't accept that she lost she's it's she's got this weird thing for Donald Trump it's very creepy all it's very creepy I had high hopes for her as a candidate but she complete. I mean she literally on stage three days before the election in Arizona told McCain voters not to vote for her who does that it's terrible politics The race was not stolen. Plenty of other Republicans in Arizona won. Uh, The idea that it was stolen from her, no, it wasn't. Just accept it. She's a terrible candidate. I know like five angry men in the audience refused to accept it. I think they got the hots for her. Uh, But she was a terrible candidate, and I thought she was going to be very good, and she wasn't, and she blew it at the end. She's been elected to nothing, and yet somehow she's the star at CPAC Hungary, as if we're going to pay attention, playing the culture warrior role in Hungary— While her Twitter accounts are telling people lay off the culture war stuff, stop focusing on the trans stuff, stop focusing on Bud Light. Y'all, look at the Bud Light issue. It was not conservatives that boycotted Bud Light. It was Americans, the same Americans who refused to go to Target when Target allowed men into the women's restroom. The polling, this is something I can talk about from this meeting in Washington, The polling among married women with children in this country is so off the chains for the GOP on this issue, the Democrats can't even see it coming. Women with children do not want their daughters competing against boys in sports, particularly when their daughters a lot of times need the scholarships to go to college. Women do not want their daughters having to compete against boys. They don't want them hurt on the field. They don't want the boys in the girls' bathroom. The polling is so solid for the GOP, and yet you got Carrie Lake's out there saying, leave these issues alone, stop talking about these issues. We need to talk about other things. I think there is one person in the country who does need to move to crimes and jobs in the economy. That guy is Ron DeSantis. But that doesn't mean don't talk about what he's done. The issue for DeSantis, and I want to talk about this, is he's about to enter the race. Um, When we come back, I'll talk about a little more. But we all know what DeSantis has done. I mean, most Americans think the only thing he's done is go to war with Mickey Mouse. So I think he needs to pivot. But Republicans can't abandon the culture war. Now, that doesn't mean you should prioritize it over everything else. I've long said, I maintain, I'm convinced that I'm right, that the Republicans do need to focus on jobs, crime, the economy first. But that doesn't mean they don't need to talk about the culture stuff. They need to talk about the culture stuff. The polling outside of abortion... Abortion's not good for the GOP right now. But all the other culture stuff is good. The transgender agenda, good. Uh, the indoctrination of kids, good. Uh, the, all of this stuff. And, and all you have to do is look at Bud Light and realize it wasn't just conservatives who boycotted. It was Americans. Conservatives don't have that level of clout. Conservatives can't organize a national boycott to impact sales in a company like that. They just simply haven't done it. Progressives, by the way, haven't been able to do it either, but the media disproportionately credits progressives for boycotts and suggests that impacts are caused by progressives. They never do that for conservatives. They never do because they really know deep down neither the angry progressives nor the angry conservatives have that much economic clout. It's the middle, the moderates, the independents. They're the ones with the clout. They're the most of us in the country and they're the ones rebelling same ones who rebelled against target. The polling is there for us for Carrie Lake to be in Hungary being culture warrior princess while here in this country on her Twitter feed saying we need to ignore these issues and move to other stuff. And by the way, it is her team. No one disputes. It's her team. There's been no hack, none of that. Uh, It's just, it's, it's absurd posing. Desantis, on the other hand, I think he needs to focus more on jobs, crime, and the economy. I want to talk about that when we come back, as people are already writing his obituary and he hasn't even gotten into the race. All right, the last half hour of the show, and then I get more meetings. Aren't you happy for me? I hope you guys have a great re- weekend. I do actually want to watch the coronation tomorrow. I won't be able to. I got my buddy Cole wants me to to speak uh, to frontline policy. Somebody tell him I got the name of his of his group, right? Uh, I'm going to speak in the morning. I don't even know the topic yet. I'll figure out the topic, but I'm going to be there. Okay. I want to talk about DeSantis while my brain is still working before I go deep dive into more polling stuff with, uh, all the people at these meetings. Um, I, I, I'm trying not to spend as much time on the 2024 stuff because I feel in many cases, it's repetitive and in most cases I'm already burnt out on 2024 like I I don't I'm dreading having to get into it and I realize the news will change and the dynamics will change. And I always feel like if if I feel I think I, I think that when I am burnt out on a topic, you guys have to be burnt out on the topic. I realize I tend to engage in these topics a lot more than many of you engage in these topics just because of the nature of the show and what I do for a living. But I just I, I I I'm fundamentally kind of bored of the topic already. However, that being said, I am really intrigued by the by the obituary of the DeSantis campaign being written. Larry Sabato is a broken man. Larry Sabato is Sabato's crystal ball. He's from the University of Virginia. He has in the past few years shown himself to be an extremely rabid partisan, which casts doubt on, on how he was ever fair to begin with. Well, he wasn't. He was always progressive. But the media has given him some level of clout to pretend to be fair when he's not. And it, the man doesn't like Republicans, despises Donald Trump. And he was on television the other day. I don't even want to play the clip. I don't want to hear his voice. But uh he was talking about how the Desantis campaign—it's done. It's over. It, it hasn't even left the gate. It's already been aborted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Th- those aren't his words, but that was it. That basically, what a clunker of a campaign. And that is the conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom is that Desantis has allowed Trump to get the leg up on him. That Desantis, by refusing to campaign right now, has come off as weak. Desantis's polling has collapsed. And clearly it's not recoverable. Trump has surged. But I just keep coming back to it. And I was having this conversation with a major national reporter the other day, who you all would know, who was was picking my brain on this because he's kind of flummoxed by as well. All of the people who have written the obituary of the DeSantis campaign, and the man has not even declared his presidential candidacy yet. He hasn't even started his exploratory committee yet. And yet everyone is, oh, the the man is toast. The man is toast. Uh, He he can't catch up. He can't do it. So here's my thinking. I don't have any inside knowledge. Haven't talked to his team. I know his team. I don't bother team. I mean, they don't leak anyway. There's no point. But the narrative is now set that DeSantis' team doesn't know what it's doing. DeSantis' team is in a league of their own, and it's a bad league you don't want to be in. They're having circles run around them by everyone else, including people who aren't even running for president. They're just that bad of a disaster. They're getting beat up by Mickey Mouse, who's turned the tables on them. Everything is bad. It's all terrible. He's already lost. He can't win. What if DeSantis... Gets in the race in a week or two. By the way, it's coming. It's going to be very soon. He gets in the race and fires on all cylinders. Shows $30 million raised. You, you know he's got $80 million in the bank. And he's going to give it to a super PAC. And he's got a lot of people who have pledged money to him that are holding the checks. And he's got a lot of money in his gubernatorial campaign, and the people who gave him the money are going to authorize him to send the checks over the presidential campaign. So out of the gate, he's going to have a ton of money. So suddenly the guy whose campaign is dead has more money in his war chest than anyone else, has a better funded super PAC than anyone else, including Donald Trump, raises more money in the first 30 days of his announcement than any other candidate, including Trump. And his campaign is actually firing on cylinders, throwing punches, and, and putting everybody else on defense if he does stuff. And and by the way, that's a very high burden. That, that is a very hard thing to do. When you get out of the gate and everybody is guns blazing coming at you, the problem for them, though, is that the guns have been blazing already at DeSantis. So they know a lot of the attacks. It's not like we're going to have these wild, crazy Baltic. Like there will be some, but ones that can be anticipated that have not yet come. Everybody's thrown everything they've got at DeSantis with the, hand, with the exception of just a couple of things. And the DeSantis team knows what those are. Here's why I, I'm, I'm intrigued by this one. You do not wait. You don't wait. Because you know that when you are perceived to be a candidate and you wait... Everyone else is going to attack you. Everyone else is going to define you. Everyone else is going to fundraise around your injury. Everyone else is going to do the oppo research. Everyone else is going to have the attacks ready to go. And the job is on day one to keep you on defense and make you stumble. That's it. If I were running a campaign, that's what I would do. I do massive amount of opposition research on Ron DeSantis ASAP. I've had months to do it because we all knew he was going to run. I would have told my donors, don't send me a check yet, wait for DeSantis to get in, and then send me the check, not him the check, so I can show a big total. And I would have the ad war prepared. Welcome to the race, Ron DeSantis, you corrupt SOB. People are going to see you for who you are, and you're a terrible person, and look at all the people who died in Florida, and you say the economy in Florida is great, blah, 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 blah. Let me tell you this terrible story about Florida and how much I hate Florida, blah, 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 blah. I mean, that that's that's what you do as a candidate. You anticipate these things. So I assume that the DeSantis campaign has anticipated all these things as well. And so the result is that they're coming into a race preparing to be attacked. And so many of the attacks have already been launched. They kind of know what the attacks are going to be. So they can strategize around them. They can respond to them. And they also, I guarantee you, because when I ran campaigns, I did this. They've hired researchers to research DeSantis themselves. Now, why do you do that? You want to be able to anticipate the attacks. You want to be able to anticipate. So what you do, you hire a research firm, and you tell the research firm, I want you to find every bad thing possible on Candidate X. And they do. And they find stuff, and they try to put it in the most unfavorable light, and they try to back it up, and they do copious amounts of research. I've gotten these books. I've built these books. I've made these books. I've leaked these books. It's what you do and you do it on your own candidate as well. I had one candidate one time when I was running campaigns for office. Was running a congressional race. The candidate was convinced he did not need to do opposition research on himself. He was absolutely convinced there was no reason and I kept trying to tell him I was like sir You have got to do opposition research on yourself. You have got to hire someone to dig into your real estate portfolio and your business background and everything else because you're going to get attacked and we need to anticipate it. And the guy's like, I I know all the stuff. Here's this and this and this and this. Well, he did not anticipate the attacks that came because he didn't hire opposition research. He was completely floored stuff that he didn't even remember from years before. One of them was a business deal. One of them was a book that he had published, And like when he was getting his doctorate. It was, it was a disaster for him, and he lost. And I told him, this is what happens. The DeSantis team is smart. The DeSantis team knows. They've done the opposite research on DeSantis. And the funny thing is, all these other campaigns had no impulse control. Trump's in particular had no impulse control. They rushed out with all the opposition research. Boom, hit him on this. 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 Boom, him on this. I guarantee you there's someone in the DeSantis team with a with a check box and it's like, chick, they've hit us on this. Chick, they've hit us on this. Chick. they've hit us on this. Chick. They've hit us on this. Chick. They've hit us on this. They hit us on this. Okay. They fit us on all these things. What is there left for them to hit on? Okay. They haven't hit us on these things. These things we found in our own research. They're going to find them too. Let's anticipate and respond to the attacks. So let's just say hypothetically, he comes out of the gate. He fires on all cylinders. He raises the money. He doesn't make the missteps. It turns out his incompetent team is actually competent. He resets the whole narrative, does he not? Because everything the media said, his campaign is DOA, he, he he's not doing well, his campaign staff is out of their depth, they're just Floridians, they don't know how to run a national campaign, uh, they got all these attacks coming. It looks suddenly like they're good. It looks suddenly like, hey, DeSantis might know what he's doing. And it forces a relook by the voters who have been turned away from him over the last month of negative coverage. And that's the important thing. It forces the reboot. It forces the relooking. It forces everybody to pay attention to a guy they were starting to write off. And that could work well. Not only could it work well generally because it forces people to look again, but it could work well more specifically in that it then drives greater skepticism of the narratives around DeSantis. When all the media has told you X and the reality is Y, you're even more skeptical of the media. And everyone is generally skeptical of the media but also tends to go along with the media, particularly when the media tells you what you want to believe anyway. And a lot of people became comfortable with the idea that DeSantis was running scared because he hadn't gotten in. He hadn't gotten in because the Florida legislature was meeting. People forget that when he was reelected at his reelection party, people were chanting two more years, not four more years, two more years. The Trump team first said they thought he needed to serve out four years. Then they said, well, DeSantis shut down Florida too much during covid now they're saying DeSantis didn't shut down Florida enough and people died. And they're dogging the economy. I don't know if you saw, but there was an uh, independent report out that Florida is now the number one state in elementary and secondary education and the number one state to do business in, the number one state for job creation. Now we here in Georgia, where I am, we like that title for ourselves. And now suddenly Florida's got it. He's got a story to tell if he wants to tell the story. The question is, when's he coming out? And how does he do it? But I think there's a path for him if he does. And the last thing I would say is a buddy of mine at National Review wrote a good piece that when he gets in, he needs to fight Trump. He needs to fight Trump. He doesn't need to try to find a way around Trump. He doesn't need to play nice with Trump. He's got to fight Trump. Trump's standing between him and the nomination. And I would suggest to you the way for him to do that is jobs, the economy, and crime. We already know he's the culture warrior. Most Americans only know him as the man who fought Disney. Now he needs to show Americans he can take on the economy and crime, the two issues Americans care about. Throw the border in there as well. If he can do those things, he's got a path forward. If he can't, if he can't execute, if he can't put the stuff together, then, yeah, Trump's going to be the nominee. I I, I think that uh, Haley and Pence and Scott are wonderful candidates, all of whom are friends of mine. And they kind of got to hope that DeSantis and Trump destroy each other. And that kind of, for the most part, is on DeSantis, not on Trump. Now, it's on you to call Vision Computer to see if they can help you with a computer. Listen, I mean this very seriously. Their customer service is so good. If you've got an elderly relative you want to buy a computer for, let Vision Computer do it. Because you may not need all the fancy stuff from the big boxes, big box stores. Vision can custom build it for you, exactly what your your senior citizen parent, grandparent, whatever needs to stay with the grandkids, to be able to video call them, what have you, and will handle their tech support. So your grandparent or your parent is not calling you for tech support, but Vision Computer. And they answer the phone within about 15 seconds. If they can't help immediately, they take a number, they call you back. They don't put you in in call waiting hell. They take care of you. If you call them at 404-COMPUTE, ask about the Eric Erickson special. You can't find it on their website, which is visioncomputers.com, by the way. Now, if you don't have a computer from Vision, but you want their world-class technical support, you can pay an annual fee, small annual fee. They will be your people. They can remote into your computers. They can take care of your computer remotely. They can help you with email. They can help you with viruses. They can help you with everything with your computer most often you don't even have to take your computer to them. They can just do it remotely. If you want them to build your computers for yourself, your office, your employees, your family, they are your tech support people with your computer. You get it for a year built in, and then small annual fee keeps them going. They answer the phone. Their customer service is the best. Go to visioncomputers.com or call them 404-COMPUTE. Tell them I sent you 404-COMPUTE. Ask about the Eric Erickson special. Welcome back. Okay, we're almost at the end, which means I got to leave you guys and go back in the meetings. I hope you guys have a great weekend and sorry, Jim. I I just kept running my mouth in that last segment, so this is a short one. But can I just tell you before I get out of here? So you know, our oldest is looking at colleges and listen, I I I get so much so many e- emails from people trying to be helpful. I, I appreciate it. I I want to thank all of you. I can't respond to all of it, but then some of us like, oh, no, you should send your kid here. It, the amount of people who think they should like weigh in on where I send my kid to college and how I should raise my kid is, is it, it just mind-numbing to me. Um And I I I, I don't know. I, I get a lot of helpful emails like you should consider this and this is a great school. You should put on your radar. But I mean, some of the, the emails are just like, I can't believe you would let your kid go to this sort of school. I mean, she wants to be an engineer. People, she wants to blow up China. Essentially, that's that's her sales pitch. <laughs> but the thing we're dealing with is the SAT and the ACT, and and she she had a great SAT, but it wasn't quite where she wanted it to be, and she retook it, and we're like ninety nine point nine convinced she like um, skipped a row or something, and everything was off by one because it messed up part of her score on one. And, and kind of upset her, and then she took the ACT, and, and the kids these days are encouraged to do it blind, which is what I did. I never studied. I didn't even know you could study for the standardized tests. And so she went in uh, having never studied for the ACT before, and she did very well. Now, I never took the SAT. I took the ACT. I took it once and blew it out of the water. And I'm I, That's not bragging on myself. I know it sounds like it. I just I took it once. I did so well. I never took it again, I just one time. Uh, She took it once. She'll take it a second time. She'll do study prep for it, like the science section and stuff. But what's so crazy to me now is the number of schools who say it's unnecessary, that that you don't have to take it, that it's optional. And they make a big deal about it. And yet when you go into the rooms with the counselors, like, yeah, if you take it, I mean, you might get more scholarships, and and you're more likely to be admitted. And if you're going to an engineering program, you really should. But we're not going to tell you to, but you should. It's it's kind of crazy. It, it is. We've now been to multiple colleges, and we have these same sort of wink wink, nod nod conversations of of. We're not going to tell you to take the SAT, but we're not going to tell you if you do take it, you're more likely to get admitted, but we might think it, we're just not going to say it out loud. And now you've got uh, classical education alternatives. It's really hard to be a kid in school these days. I mean, the other thing are the tracks. We didn't have tracks when I was in school the collegiate track and the honors track, and the collegiate track really isn't the collegiate track. It's the track that you got to do if you don't want to go to college and you just want to get out of school. And the honors track is the track that you do if you really want to go to college and so that you're serious and take all the AP classes. And It's just, I I feel bad for kids. It's so hard for kids to be kids these days dealing with the stupid standardized tests and stuff. But I mean, literally, we interviewed with one college or saw one college. They're like, yeah, we want your transcripts. We want you to fill out the form. We want your test scores. We don't care about anything else. I'm like, maybe that's the one to go. We'll see. I'll keep you posted. All right. I got to go back to meetings. You guys have a great weekend. I will talk to you all on Monday.